friends, and welcome back to the Classics Podcast Reclamation, an intervention in the current conversation around theater history, where we recenter and uplift the Black writers and storytellers of the American theater, both the celebrated and the forgotten. My name is Brittany Bradford, and I am still your host for part one of our five-part series, Black Performance in the Era of Minstrelsy. Last episode, if you recall, we focused on the early history and popularity of the Georgia minstrels, particularly the performers and managers attached to them throughout their existence, men like Charles Hicks, Bob Height, Lou Johnson, and Billy Kersans. This week, the women take the lead as we lift up the artistry and legacy of Anna Maida and Emma Louise Hires, also known as the Hires Sisters, who opened the gates for Black women on the stage. With their troupe, the Higher Sisters combination, they became pioneers in the earliest iteration of Black musical theater. This isn't just about the women taking the lead in the 19th century, though. We are rocking some 21st century lady love as well, as I will be joined in this episode and subsequent others by Arminda Thomas, Classics' resident researcher, dramaturg extraordinaire, musician, and president of the Sam Lucas Fan Club. We'll also get to hear excerpts from an interview Arminda and I had with performer and producer Cecile Bibbs, who has created two documentaries and a book about the Higher Sisters. So, Arminda, hi. We've spoken about Black minstrelsy. We have seen that it's actually quite imperative that we have this conversation about research on Black artists from the past and how who tells the story, who transcribes it, who gets to be an authority on the narrative has just as much of an effect on its analysis and the way it's perceived as the story in and of itself. So I am curious what what it's been like researching the subject of Black minstrelsy on your end. You know, we started and the libraries were closed. And um, eventually we had a a kind of workaround for that. But before we had that workaround, uh, we just had to start with what was available, which turned out to be newspaper databases and, um, and, you know, things that digital collections online. And fortunately, the library did help us out by making a lot of things that normally you have to be physically at the library to access available um, from home. So that was, thank you, NYPL. You are fantastic. And we owe so much to you. Um, But the thing that that did for me um, and for us is that instead of going immediately to the secondary sources, which are incredibly helpful, but often contradictory. And instead of starting there, there was a lot of just tracking and mapping that I had to try to do with the primary sources, which I think forced us to think about this in a different way. And um, and I think that's ultimately been really helpful. Are there any favorite discoveries that you've had so far through it all? So many fun discoveries that I've made. I mean, really, on on some level, it's all been a bunch of fun discoveries, right? Because so many of these people I had never heard of, and now I am fan clubbing them. You know, Sam Lucas and the Higher Sisters and Charles Hicks. But I would say that one of the more surprising discoveries is the level of interest and popularity that Black entertainers had in the Midwest, Um, The the number of news items that we found that came in from Iowa and Nebraska and Kansas and Wisconsin and, um, you know, just 
all of these places that we're not expecting because we're generally expecting to be looking at the New York Clipper, um, especially for minstrelsy, the New York Clipper and the other New York papers and the Boston papers, and but we're not really expecting the Midwest to be such fertile ground for research. And I think that one of the reasons for that is that you know, in New York, there's a lot of entertainment to choose from. In Boston, there's a lot of entertainment. Entertainment, um, But in the Midwest, in a lot of these towns, you know, the there are a couple of things happening. So they get a lot of press. They get a lot of excitement. And when those entertainers come back, they really store the memory of their last shows. They really, they really just kind of take to them. And some of that spills over sometimes into personal interest in the artists. And uh, on that note, one of my very favorite discoveries is one that I found ooh, just a couple of nights ago, and I'm going to save it for later in the program. I'm so interested to hear your your secret that I don't even know. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And I guess welcome to the hosting side of the podcast. And let's get the conversation going. Higher Sisters, take it away. When I, when I think about the Higher Sisters, I, I think about the Williams Sisters. I am now going to uh, steal from your fantastic tendency to, to contemporize <laughs> with the contemporary analogy. And I'm going to say we think of the Williams Sisters of Venus and Serena, um, you know, who as young girls showed this talent for tennis and then their father, um, particularly their parents, but their father just fed this nascent talent with a determination to ensure that they had every opportunity to, you know, bring some black excellence into this sport that had been considered Arthur Ashe and Althea Gibson notwithstanding to be, you know, a pretty white space. So Anna Maida and Emma Louise Hires were 19th century Williams sisters, only their talent was music, vocalization, concert singing. And at a very early age, the girls began singing duets and performing scenes from operas just for fun to entertain themselves and their parents. And their parents, Samuel B. and Annie E. Hires, saw that their daughters had real potential. And being music lovers and amateur performers themselves, they decided to train them. But within a year, the students had surpassed the masters. So their parents leveled up. They got a German music teacher. They got an Italian former opera singer to teach them piano and vocalization, languages, intonation, enunciation, all of the things that you need to be um, taken seriously as a concert singer in that time. And in 1867, the 12-year-old Anna Maida and 10-year-old Emma Louise made their professional debut to great acclaim at the Metropolitan Theater in Sacramento. So though the Higher Sisters were born in New York, they were just like you, Brittany, they were California girls. The gold rush drew their parents west soon after Emma was born. And as Sushil made clear in our interview, the sisters' ambitions were nurtured not only by their parents, but by the Black community of the Bay Area, which, though small, was a mighty and a hotbed of art and activism. 
part of the the joy of going on this journey is is getting the opportunity to meet people who've already delved into this research themselves. And one of the people who we had the pleasure to speak to was Sushil Bibbs. Sushil is a singer, actress, filmmaker, scholar, and author, and she's known for her recitals of rare musical works and has presented numerous masterclasses focusing on concert spirituals and Black classical song. The higher sisters, their community, and the arts community that was going on during that time. And when we talk of the higher sister, sisters, we're really uh, talking about when they became the higher sisters. And that would start in uh, about 1869. So to understand why they succeeded, you really do have to understand their community and understand the politics of the time. The fledgling 19th century um, African-American community in Sacramento, Stockton, San Francisco, um, Oakland was united by a steamship line that ran between uh, San Francisco and Sacramento. And there the steam stewards would bring messages back and forth. Uh, the, the important thing is that the um, Anna, Anna Maida her father was a barber, and the barbers were the griots of the Sacramento community, and they passed all that information that needed to be passed between communities to uh, the, the community. In, in Sacramento, the Franchise League, and a, uh, which was a group in San Francisco and Sacramento, they were working to get the right of testimony, and by 1863, that law did pass so that African Americans could testify in court, and it was at that time that uh, the communities became really emboldened. But before that, they had what they call colored conventions in Sacramento, and all people mm -hmm. from all the areas would come, and they set up newspapers and plans for schools. So we get that sense of people excited about their new rights. And in Oakland, they started a concert hall called the Mechanics Hall, and that was where the hires they sponsored in one of their first successful concerts. So they were, they backed businesses, they backed arts, there were famous sculptors, um, they were trying to say that they wanted the American dream and that is important because that's what the hires felt about their community. In Oakland, the community organized strikes and labor for labor groups. They, uh, the community sponsored uh, not only concerts, but they set the higher social compass. That's what the hires felt they should be talking about. So in 1871, the higher sisters headed east on their first transcontinental tour. And their parents had separated at this point, and Sam Hires gave up his barber shop to become their manager. Everywhere they went, it seems, they drew crowds and great reviews. I mean, great reviews. So here's one from Beatrice, Nebraska. A very select and critical audience attended at Hawks Hall last night to hear the higher sisters sing, and everybody went crazy over it, bursting out in ecstatic raptures and thunders of applause, piling up encore after encore as if they could never drink enough of that exquisite melody. Critics raved about Anna Maida's pure soaring soprano, about Emma Louise's deep, rich contralto, as well as her abilities with comic operetta pieces. And because Emma's range extended far down into 
the bass line, she could sing a male lead to her sister's female lead in romantic duets, which was a feature that historian Jocelyn Buckner calls oral drag. And that charmed their audiences, but it also made material available to them, which would not be available for um, Black men and women to perform on stage together. I love that. I love the element of drag even back in the 19th century. On the East Coast, Sam Hires expanded the group, hiring baritone John Luca, who was well known to New England concert aficionados as a former member of the Luca family singers, and Wallace King, a classically trained tenor from New Jersey. Boston critics, who were famously hard to please, proclaimed they are without doubt destined to occupy a high position in the musical world. In fact, the hires found the Boston cultural scene so welcoming that it became effectively their home base. And in 1872, the sisters were invited to participate in the largest musical happening in Boston, or anywhere for that matter, Patrick S. Gilmore's World Peace Jubilee and International Music Festival, an 18-day event featuring thousands of performers and choruses from around the world. Emma and Anna, along with the Fist Jubilee singers, who, if you recall, also began their first tour in 1871, led a chorus of 150 African-Americans in a rendition of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. The performance, according to one paper, sent the crowd into a rapture of boisterous enthusiasm. The next few years saw the sisters settling into their lives as popular performers, touring mostly in the Northeast, but still with a national reputation. Things were good for them. But the spirit of optimism nationally that had marked their upbringing and propelled them onto the national scene was giving way to a darker force. But now we got to talk about not only um, reconstruction, but you have to talk about post-reconstruction. That is directly what fueled the hires. So in 1866, right after the Civil War, the African-Americans, they had land. They had congressional representatives. They had people running governments, local governments, and they had the troops standing there throughout the South and all these districts to protect them. They had voting rights by the 1863. And so uh, they even had a Congress that overrode Andrew Johnson and gave voting rights uh, to African-American men in in, uh, D.C. and in the West. So this was a very exciting time for them. A cycle, however, of slow economic recovery came about, and you'll start to see how this parallels things that go on today. So in 1873 and 76, the economy began to slow, and people uh, saw immigrants into California as other. This always happens when people are suffering. They see the people who are different from them as coming in to take what they have. Ulysses Grant couldn't handle it. And in 1870-76, all of the different political powers were on edge. In 1876, the uh, ability of the electors to elect a president broke down. And so there ensued uh, a, a deal with a man named Rutherford B. Hayes, who had been sympathetic with, Af- with African-Americans. But it's a strange thing when you get power 
And so they made a deal with him. They said if he would just pull the troops out of the South, well, well then he could become president. And that's what he did. Well, all hell broke loose. The removal of protective troops caused a racial backlash of hatred which exists today. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation about the legendary Higher Sisters. Again, my name is Brittany Bradford, and I'm here with Arminda Thomas. Let's jump back into the conversation. In 1875, the Higher Sisters secured a famously respected agency, Red Path Lyceum, who had represented such speakers and performers as Mark Twain, Frederick Douglass, um, Susan B. Anthony, so a really uh, a, a top-notch group. And shortly after, it was announced that Red Path had hired, commissioned, Joseph Bradford, a Southern white man turned Union soldier, to write a play for the hires chronicling a family's journey from slavery to freedom. Originally titled Out in the Wilderness, it became more widely known as Out of Bondage. To round out the company, the hires swiped Sam Lucas, who at that point had become famous as a comedian and balladeer songwriter from Calendar's Georgia Minstrels. And seriously, when I say swiped, he was one week, Calendar's was announcing the whole season with him as a headliner, and the next week he was hanging out with the Hollywood sisters. Out of Bondage was labeled a great moral drama in the spirit of early non-menstrual productions of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And that's born of the idea that drama can and should inspire moral feelings and behavior in its audience. Um, Structurally, it had three acts. And the first was um, a family, uh, an enslaved family gathering at the end of a long day to share a meager but delicious meal of possum. The possum being specific because Sam Lucas had a very well-known song called Carve That Possum, and they wanted to include it in the play, so possum was the meal. In the second act, we had freedom. The Union troops came, the white owners fled, and the family was freed. Young people decide to go north, and the old couple remain on the plantation, or plan to. And this piece is notable because uh, it included Sherman's March to the Sea, like Hicks's Georgia Menstruals. And also because, um, because they had this March to the Sea, it allowed them to get participation from the audience. Uh, and then the third act um, is, happens years later when the old couple, who had followed Sherman's March after all, then decide to come and see their children and find that they have settled in Boston, they're all living well, gainfully employed as Jubilee singers, and speaking perfect English. So that is that is the moral part, right? Here's Sushil Bibbs again. And this is what started the hires. Remember that the hires, we can know that the hires were told that African Americans were seeking the dignity of the American dream. And yet, this was not the picture in most minds. Uh, uh, you know, whites continued to wear the blackface mask in performances that would serve to define the meaning of blackness by all or most Americans who had little contact with blacks. And that is a quote by Dr. Errol Hill. 
So what happens here is that they see that that is the image that's out there. They know that they are important in white um, um, theater. And they decide that they're going to use their clout and go back through their audiences, and they did so for 20 years, and bring them a new vision of African Americans to try to counter what was going on uh, with the denigration of their people. So it's showing that um, that freedom and this life in the North has tamed, has made all of them better people and prosperous. And at the end, there was a coda, which was a, a time for a character song. And the character song was usually sung by Sam Lucas. And it was almost always, at least for the first um, for the first couple of years, it was almost always his rendition of My Grandfather's Clock. They brought hits into their show because it was, it was um, very um, malleable. You could, as long as you could uh, support an, a, per, a part of the story, you could put any song there. So what started was just spirituals became enriched with the music of the times, which was Gilbert and Sullivan-like music, and all the pop hits from the times, which had to do with the things that uh, Sam Lucas was doing and others. So the people flocked. Their audiences flocked to this. First of all, they love the hires. Opera uh, audiences are very loyal. Secondly, they love the stories. Thirdly, they realized that, you know, they could relate. For the very first time, they created black leading characters on stage. And, and these audiences could relate to what they were doing. It was a really big hit. The management had to take out ads warning against companies purporting to produce plays with the same or similar titles, uh, the Hire Sisters, and later a separate company run by Sam Hires, which we will get to, uh, toured with the play on and off for about 20 years. I think it was you actually who coined the term alt-minstrelsy when we were trying to figure out what to call this special category of performers like the Hire Sisters who weren't necessarily operating in the same mode of minstrelsy that we saw from minstrel troops in episode one. So can you talk about what you mean by alt-minstrelsy? Yeah, alt-minstrelsy to me is, it, it's like a riff on music. So you have um, alternative rock, alternative country, alt. And it's, it's generally used to describe songs and artists who aren't really in the mainstream of something. It is in the conversation, but it is not quite the thing, or there's something that deviates that makes it feel kind of outside. Usually it's like independent, like independent artists would be, are, are often also alternative. So if you think about this 19th century setup where minstrelsy is the mainstream, it is in fact, perhaps the first American mainstream entertainment and blackface representation of blackness is a defining characteristic of minstrelsy. So on some level, the first black minstrel troops, um, you know, Hicks's group obviously would might fall under the tra the traditional, like I'm naming it and therefore the traditional <laughs> alt minstrelsy title um, because they're performing without, if they're performing without burnt cork, then that is outside of the mainstream. But then also because minstrelsy has cornered the market on performing blackness, that is that is what the audience kind of comes in thinking about when they see black bodies on stage, then even performers 
who are not performing with the thought of menstruacy, who are consciously attempting as the higher sisters were under Red Path and, and through their life to be anti-menstrual in terms of the show, in terms of what they want to present, even they and classical performers like Elizabeth Greenfield or concert singers like the Luca Family Singers or Blind Tom, they're going to be alt-menstruacy because they are, by virtue of being Black, they're in conversation. And once Black menstrual troops begin touring, that stream gets even murkier because other uh, Black performers often get put on the same bill. So the Fish Jubilee singers who are singing uh, classically arranged renditions of Black spirituals are sometimes billed as menstrual troops in white papers. When, when I'm looking through, we're finding white papers, we'll call them, you know, this menstrual troupe out of Tennessee. They're not a menstrual troupe. They're not performing menstrual shows. They're, it doesn't have that structure, but they are Black people singing. They're a menstrual troupe. So the higher sisters, um, even though they, and, and particularly their agent, Red Path, took care in the billing, you know, said, this is not, this is no minstrel show. That, but they're in that stream. They're in the stream. And not only that, um, there's sometimes they play on the same bill as minstrel troops sometimes. The, the month that Sam Lucas jumped from calendars to the hires was the same month that the Georgia minstrels and the hires sisters performed together in Boston. In fact, it might have been that very week that they said, hey, come join us. And he jumped. So um, and then you, when you have, you know, members who float from one to the other, that all becomes, you know, it's just it's just very blurred. And it's not a judgment. It's just it's just an observation. That this is that this is a this is a thing that they're contending with. So in 1878, just as quickly as he came, Sam Lucas um, was um, suddenly missing from the higher sister combination. And now we have some 19th century hot tea. <laughs> because this time he did not quit and bounce. He apparently was bounced. And newspapers around the country, this is not an exaggeration, Newspapers around the country, not hundreds, but like dozens, had speculation on what had happened. And they all came to one conclusion. And that conclusion was that love was at the heart of Sam's sudden absence. Yes, a showman's. And this is particularly hot tea from the Cedar Falls, Iowa Gazette. Council Bluff's Nonpareil brings out this new version of the love affair of Sam Lucas and Emma L. Hires. Last fall, when the Hire sisters appeared in this city in their play Out of Bondage, the indications were that Sam Lucas, the colored comedian of the troupe, was slightly, if not considerably, gone on Miss Emma L. Hires, the vivacious contralto. We have lately noticed by an exchange that appearances were not deceptive in this case, and furthermore, that Sam's tender passion for the dusky creature touched a sweet responsive chord in her susceptible breast. But 
The old man hires kept a watchful eye over the young folks and looked with high disfavor on the mutual yearnings of the mirth-provoking Sam and the sweet-voiced Emma. The sequel to this romance in real life occurred in Peoria the other day when Sam and the girl attempting to go before a preacher and have the knot tied, but the old man hires got wind of it and issued his writ of injunctions and put the girl under surveillance. Fearing that this might not have the desired effect, the old man went further and bounced Sam out of the company, and he has no one to do character songs for him, as Sam has stopped short never to go again till the old man hires dies. So this abrupt separation caused both Lucas and the hires to flounder a bit, though they managed both of them to stay productive. And we'll talk about Sam's work later. But the hires recovered by wooing an even, arguably, bigger star from the minstrel sage, comedian Billy Kersans, to take Lucas's place. And they added another new play to their repertory called Erlina, the African Princess. And this is the first play, um, as far as we can, as far as we have found so far, to tell an African love story. The title character, the African princess Orlina, is played by Anna Maida, and the prince who falls in love with her is played not by Billy Kersand, no, but by Emma Louise. <laughs> Kersand played seven different characters, all of them funnier than, than the last one, and the reviews were pretty strong, but the piece doesn't seem to have resonated the way Out of Bondage did. There's a book by Ike Simon, a man named Ike Simon, who we um, only know because he wrote this book, which is called Old Slack's Reminiscences of the Colored Profession. And it's his attempt to tell the story of Black people performing from about 1865 to 1891. Though it's written, it feels so much like an oral history because it's really just one man who has been involved in this profession trying to tell the story as he remembers it from, you know, bills that he may have, but often on his recollection, which is to say, as you know, you might know when you ask your grandparents about things, there may be some things that are not quite according to Hoyle. They're not quite right, but the general feel of it is right. You get the, you get the the end the idea of you know how many people really are performing and and um and kind of what people thought about them at the time sometimes particularly for charles hicks and lou johnson and sam lucas and the higher sisters he talks about the higher sisters he says they were the best show he ever saw and that's another way of looking at it when you talk about we talk about the mainstream as being minstrelsy but in his framing the mainstream for for Ike Simon and perhaps for them too are black people trying to be artists. You know, it's 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 the beginnings of um, you know they're not all in the same place. They meet sometimes in cities. You get more two or more groups together and they get to vibe off each other and then go their separate ways. But it's you know it's this movement towards the idea of a community, right? And then in eighteen in eighteen eighty three. Um, after they've been dropped by Red Path, Emma, Emma and Anna separated from their father, who had married a company member, 
the former Macy Daniels, who was many years younger, kind of a contemporary of the of the daughters, and seemed poised to um, use her as a replacement for Emma Louise. And at some point, we're going to move from Emma, Emma Louise and Anna Maida to Maida and Louise, because as they got older, that is how they began referring to themselves professionally. So they split with their father. Their father built a company called the Hires Colored Concert Singers or the Hires Colored Combination. He dropped sisters, but it was so close that scholars found it really hard to understand that there were two troops at this time, that there were two hires groups going. And so the higher sisters are sometimes credited with things that were done by um, their father's company. But after Sam and May go their way, that would be Sam hires, not Sam Lucas, but after Sam and May go their way, the sisters um, are sometimes forced to work more, cl- more closely with minstrel troops. Um, they convinced the calendar consolidated minstrel troupe to do Uncle Tom's Cabin in San Francisco. So uh, Emma uh, Emma Louise married the band leader during a performance of Uncle Tom's Cabin in San Francisco. And then Anna, the next week, married another member of the band. <laughs> so they were really intertwined in this life. And they continued to perform um, sometimes with minstrel troupe manager types as their managers. Sometimes they sang, you know, they did Jubilee songs or songs as part of the troupe, but not performing with the troupe. In 1892, um, Charles Callender briefly came out of retirement. Yes, that man, old man Callender, came out of retirement to act as the Higher Sisters agent. And that was for their last big tour, which ended in 1893. And after that, the Higher Sisters officially retired as a company, though they were not quite done as performers. You know, we've talked about uh, that women were largely absent from Black minstrelsy. It's why female impersonators were so necessary. When women were included, um, for instance, uh, a group called Haverly's Colored Minstrels toured Europe in a large troupe, a huge troupe, and there were many women included in that number, but they were strictly Jubilee singers. And those women were segregated completely from other sections of the show. But the hires as performers helped expand opportunities for Black women on stage. And I guess indirectly for Black women as writers, because one of the first offspring of this was Sam Lucas, who, after he left the hires so abruptly, had this determination to form his own troupe. He did not want to just go back to being in calendars or sprigs. He really wanted to have the thing that he had had with them. And so he formed a group, the the Sam Lucas Combination, um, and he commissioned a playwright, Pauline Hawkins, who was a, a singer herself, a performer from Boston. So she was influenced by the higher sisters who, you know, that had been their home base and she was definitely influenced by them and had seen them. And speculation is that, you know, she did some of their writing for them, though we can't find those scripts to say that that's absolutely true. After Sam's detour through Uncle Tom's cabin, he made good on his determination to form his own troupe with a play written for him. And that piece was called The Underground Railroad, 
later known as Peculiar Sam, by Pauline Elizabeth Hopkins. And that made hers first play by a Black woman to be produced and published. And that is a piece that is in conversation with Out of Bondage. As you might guess, it's called The Underground Railroad. Therefore, it is a story about moving from slavery into freedom. However, it is uh, a play about escaping from slavery into freedom. So it's much, much higher on the agency note. Um, it has a lot of the same uh, kind of stock characters in that it has a house, a, a character who would be played by a person like like Anna, the soprano, who's kind of the more cultured house servant, um, a wilder character like the kind who would be played by Emma. But it's also in conversation with another play um, that was never performed but was read a lot on in abolitionist circuits called uh, the Escape by William Wells Brown. Um, and then furthermore, in later on in 1890, uh, Sam collaborated with a white backer called, named Sam T. Jack to create a show called The Creole Show. And that was really, by most accounts, Sam's brainchild, Lucas that is, but it was really Sam's brainchild um, that, you know, he got money to kind of put together as he liked. Now, it was structurally a minstrel show. It had this, the opening act, the olio, the end, instead of being a skit, was uh, this burlesque, which is to say it was women dancing. But not the burlesque that we have come to think of as burlesque. It was just women, women dancing. But they also had women in the first part, and then the second part, acting as interlocutors in drag, dressed as interlocutors too. And after the Creole show, there was a show called The Octoroons. The Creole show's Black advance agent John Isham left in 1895 to create his own show, which expanded performance opportunities for women again. Now, this show prominently featured the higher sisters, particularly Maida Hires who stayed with the show until 1899. And she stayed mostly as a singer. But Emma, when she was there, performed in skits. And that is another expansion because in addition to being, you know, interlocutors or doing that, they also became more and more were seeing women as actual performers in the skits. John Nisham was a Black advance agent who was running the show. And of course, wherever you see... A black man renaissance, you will see some white folk trying to jump in on that. And in this case, two white men got the idea to come up with something to run in competition with the Octoroons. And they they hired to headline this show a woman named Ciceretta Jones, who, like the hires before her, was a trained opera singer who had been um, acclaimed, who had, you know, had great reviews, but was struggling to make it on on the circuit. After years on the concert circuit, she was offered this headlining role in this show that was designed to compete with the Octoroons. And, um, and she performed only in the last act. The third part was her coming out and singing arias. But even so, this, um, this company was important. A, because it featured Ciceretta Jones. It, it also expanded uh, opportunities for women and as singers and dancers and actors. The Black Patty's Troubadour is the place where we last see uh, Emma Louise hires.
she goes to join that when she leaves the Octoroons and in 1897 she comes in and then she disappears and as far as we know she passes away in 1899. In a symbolic perhaps passing of the baton, the Black Patty Troubadours is also where we first meet Ada Overton, who is a dancer, a choreographer, a performer, and who will have a very important role to play in next week's episode. Yes. And Black Patty's Troubadours had another up-and-comer in their midst who was a featured performer and skit writer by the name of Bob Cole, who would be instrumental in the next phase of Black theater. As we've said before, you know, we each have our own fan club for different performers operating at this time. You heard some Sam Lucas love earlier from Arminda. I would be remiss if I didn't give a little teaser here to a man whose vision that I've really grown to admire in this process, Mr. Bob Cole. He was a man of many talents, as many of the artists of this time were. He wrote, he performed, he advocated for himself and his fellow performers. But I think what I love most about him was the awareness he had in the power of owning what you create. And we're going to see a lot of that in this next period of minstrelsy. As we enter the early 1900s and minstrelsy shifts yet again, we see people really taking on a responsibility for the art they create and the people with whom they collaborate. Collaboration and education really are the modes at play, and we'll be investigating that in more depth by looking at two iconic duos, Williams and Walker, and Cole and Johnson and Johnson, we will get to that. We will also be looking at how the artists at the turn of the 20th century fought to create a space for black theater excellence and examine how successful that venture was. So until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you to Cecile Bibbs for her time. And be sure to check out her film, Voices for Freedom, The Higher Sisters Legacy on PBS. And thank you, Arminda. Thank you for this conversation. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for your wonderful insight. If you want to go even further down the rabbit hole and be a researcher in your own right, please check out our website, theclassics.org. That's T-H-E-C-L-A-S-S-I-X.org for further images and resources. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at It's the Classics. This episode was produced by Classics and Theater for a New Audience. Our sound engineers are Tree McCallum and Aubrey Dubay. The theme song was composed by Alfonso Horn. The episode music was composed by Jeffrey Miller. See you next week.